This podcast was created by the JCT English team for the Junior Cycle Talks podcast channel. Hello and welcome. In this podcast, you will find a recording of the webinar from Twilight to Limelight about the work of Yates, which was re-recorded on 17th of December following a live recording on the 20th of November. You can find resources and handouts to support your engagement with the podcast and the webinar at jct.ie in the English section. My name is Elaine McGowan and I am one of the advisors on the JCT English team. And today I am joined in this exploration of Yeats and the process of writing by my colleagues Lorraine Keenan and Emma Gallagher and by our esteemed guest, journalist, former senator and director of Yeats Society Sligo, Susan O'Keefe. Susan, thank you for inviting us to the Yates Building in the heart of Sligo today. Would you like to tell us about Yates Society Sligo and your role within it? Thanks very much, Elaine, and it's lovely to have you here and to be part of this very valuable project. The Yates Society has been in business for 60 years, and it was set up originally in Sligo to celebrate the work of William Butler Yates. But it was very much more a reverential type of celebration in that time because he'd only just recently died. Now we're in the 21st century, my role as director of Yates Society Sligo is very much to bring Yates to a new generation. And we do that through our international summer school and we, we also have a winter school and we run other events throughout the year to promote Yates but also to promote contemporary poetry uh, because of course that's what Yates is most famous for. And with that in mind, introducing to the new generation, we want to consider how Yates' rich work in the area of short stories and we ask ourselves, where is the short story within the Junior Cycle English specification? Our content guidelines state that a number of short stories should be included in text choice across first, second and third year. Susan Yates is of course more widely regarded as a poet. Where do the short stories that we're going to consider today fit into Yates's development as a writer? Of course, William Butler Yeats won the Nobel Prize for Literature for his poetry largely back in 1923. And he is a global poet. Everybody knows him as a poet. And so therefore, it's quite easy to forget that he wrote a serious number of plays. But he started at the beginning of his writing life while he was dabbling in poetry and trying to work out how to make it work. He became very interested in the stories of Ireland, of ancient Ireland, of the folklore and the legends. And he started to gather them up because he had heard them as a boy and he knew, in, he knew intuitively that they were important. And so he started to gather them up and reassemble them and put them together. They are the authentic stories of Ireland, if you like. So they're a hugely important part, both of his formation as a writer, but for us now in the 21st century to understand more about Ireland and also to understand about how stories were originally created long before people ever wrote anything down. So with that in mind, we can draw from Yeats's development as a writer and use that to support our students in the Junior Cycle English classroom. And our specification recognises that need to create an awareness of the process of writing. And short story is just one genre where we can support that process and helping our students develop a voice and an identity, a good sense of audience and an awareness of the process of writing. And to support us in that process, there are many resources on Yates at our disposal, including your own website, Susan, Yates Society Sligo. Can you tell us about the resources on your website that could be of interest to teachers of English? Yes, we're delighted that we, we have a website, and in fact, we will be launching a revised and updated web, website 
uh, early in the new year, in 2019. Uh, but we also have on, on our um, website, currently we have information about William Butler Yeats, about his work, about his connection to Sligo, and of course there's information there about uh, the Yeats Society and the summer school. In addition, there's uh, the website for Yeats 2015, uh, of which I was chair uh, when it celebrated the 150th birthday of William Butler Yeats. And on that website, there are a lot of beautiful readings uh, of Yeats' poetry, including by the president, Michael D. Higgins, former president, Mary Robinson, and so on. And also there's some information there about Yeats around the world. We're hoping to gather them together uh, into the future so that those resources are available in one place, yeatssociety.com. Lovely. So clearly a wealth of resources there to support us in our classrooms with our students. From the conversation together so far, a number of aspects of Yates' identity have emerged. We pose this question to our listeners on the night of the webinar. What aspects of Yates' identity as a writer particularly appeal to you? Lorraine, can I ask you to reveal some of the rich responses that we received on the night of the broadcast? Absolutely. Um, one response was that Yeats's romantic and national identity is what I have looked at in particular. Another response, his unique Irishness, his tone and imagery, his political opinions and his satirical style. From another, Yeats's uh, biography has always interested me, his interest in Irish history and nationalism, his romantic relationships and his interest in the supernatural um, and the impact that they have had on his work has always intrigued me. Um, another final response is that um, his work is accessible and timeless. Some lovely ideas there already, picking up on the quality of Yeats as a writer and how we can draw on him. And understanding, I think, the depth and the width of his work, which mm. is easy to forget if you're not interested in poetry. Mm. It's easy to forget that actually he was a writer at heart, and that's really important, particularly for your young students. And very much drawing on the human condition, even the teachers have noted that, you know, the themes that we resonate deeply with us all the time. So today we have gathered in this webinar an array of resources revealing a rich body of work from Yeats in the short story genre. You can see the titles here on screen. These resources are available alongside this recording on our JCT English page. Today we will be immersing ourselves in the Yeatsian world of family, place, myth and legend, sounds and music. We hope to inspire our students to produce creative and innovative texts of their own. So we've organized this presentation around three cornerstones. Yeats as a collector of tales. We'll look also at his myths and legends and consider Yeats as a weaver of words. We'll also consider how our learning outcomes may be used to suggest fresh and original ways to embed Yeats in the junior cycle English classroom. We have suggested some possible learning outcomes in focus here. Our language three, engage in extended and constructive discussion of their own and other students' work. Reading 13, appreciate a variety of registers and understand their use in the written context. Writing five, engage with and learn from models of oral and written language use to enrich their own written work. And writing nine, engage in the writing process as a private, pleasurable and purposeful activity and using a personal voice as their individual style is thoughtfully developed over the years. These learning outcomes are neither exhaustive nor fixed and they too can be accessed alongside this recording on the Junior Cycle for Teachers English page. Celtic Twilight, the anthology of folk tales, was one of Yeats's earlier works 
where he first started to hone his craft as a writer, emerging from his twilight into the limelight, where today he is officially recognised as one of Ireland's greatest literary writers of all time. So, as Yeats suggests to us in A Teller of Tales, let us go forth, the teller of tales, and seize whatever prey the heart long for, and have no fear. Everything exists, everything is true, and the earth is only a little dust under our feet. Susan, how did Yeats's love of place influence him as a collector of tales? His mother, Susan Pollockson, was from Sligo, and that is why, of course, Sligo is known as Yeats' country. The Yeats' children, uh, uh, William Butler Yeats and his sisters Susan, Elizabeth and his brother Jack, would come to Sligo as, as children with their mother, usually only with their mother, and sometimes with their father. And she would show them around. And of course, it's a beautiful county. And they immediately fell in love and were enchanted by the landscape and by the, the sort of gorgeous scenery, the sky, the sea, the mountains. But what was really important, particularly for William Butler Yeats, was that his mother loved to listen to the old stories, the pishogs, the folklore, the fairy stories that were very much alive on the west coast of Ireland at that time. So we're talking here around the 1870s where while the British had been in Ireland for many centuries, they hadn't quite swept it away, particularly in the West Coast, those Irish stories. She would listen to her servants telling those stories, and she would share those stories with her children. And it suddenly became a thing. It opened up his eyes and his world. And so he was inspired from a very early age by his mother. In addition, his father was a huge believer in non-formal education. He encouraged Yeats to read the classics, uh, to read poetry from other countries. So he was a very well-read young man, uh, long before, if you like, that was considered hugely important. And the fusion of his mother's stories from the original authentic Irish store of stories and his understanding of the classics from other countries gave him a very original view and an understanding from, from the start about the importance of narrative in stories and the importance of plot and the importance of character. And he would have known that uh, without ever possibly even having written it down. And so as a, as a teller of stories, he has a huge influence potentially on your young students mm -hmm. uh, in the 21st century, and they may never have thought of him in that, in that light before. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, that his love of place it struck a chord with him, and his mother's passion for the place transferred with him into his writing. And it's so apparent, I think, in this extract here from The Kidnappers in Celtic Twilight, how the local place inspired him. A little north of the town of Sligo, on the southern side of Enbolden, some hundreds of feet above the plain, is a small white square in the limestone. No mortal has ever touched it with his hand. No sheep or goat has ever browsed grass beside it. It is the door of fairyland. It's one of my favourite quotes because I'm lucky enough to live and be able to see Ben Bulban every day and to, and to think about that little square, that doorway to another world that was a very important part of Yeats's own inspiration and his own creativity, that he was always aware of this other world. And in fact, he said himself uh, when he was talking about Irish folklore that he saw this as a universe where all is large and intense enough to almost satisfy the emotions of man Certainly, such stories are not a criticism of life, but rather an extension of it. So he, he, he got the importance of these stories long before lots of other people did. 
uh, and he wanted to use them and he wanted to share them. And that's exactly what he did. So we're very lucky as a nation to have them collected for us by him. And therefore, teachers now can have them as a resource to play with, to explore, and to open up a new door uh, for young people in, in the 21st century. It's almost a lovely record of the place of the past. It, it absolutely is. And I mean, when you consider he spent a lot of his time in London, and that was grimy and it was dirty and it was packed with people. And he would come here to Sligo in the summer in the 1870s, 1880s, and it would be a kind of wilderness, a paradise. And it never, ever left him that comparison between the two places. And he understood it was possible here for that other world to be tapped into in a manner he felt he never could mm-hmm. living in London. Mm-hmm. So you can see the paradise of the place being captured in his writing. Yes, and he even has a poem actually called Running to Paradise, which I think is you know him evoking Sligo. And he said you know, at the end of his days, when he was still writing about Sligo, he always said he had carried Sligo in his heart. He described it as his spiritual home. And there's no doubt from his you know, huge amount of work, that that's very evident across the piece. But it will have stemmed from those original stories that he would have heard from his mother. And even when they were in Dublin or London, she was very homesick. She would share those stories with him and his siblings. And Jack, the very famous painter, said there was a piece of Sligo in everything he painted. So it had a profound influence on all of them. So there's a strong connection for our students to think how plays that resonates with them could feed into their writing or be a stimulus for their writing as well, isn't it? For sure. He was very interested in landscape and and we can see why. But your landscape, whatever your landscape is, you know, the light, Mm -hmm. the sky, uh, the birds, whatever way it shapes itself, the houses, the, the poles, everything can have an influence on how you think if you open your mind to that. Yes, equally, even the stories your family may tell you of your traditional areas around. And that leads me to this question I'd like to ask you next. From the stories that we'll be discussing today, Susan, are there any stories that were particularly influenced by his love of family? You've mentioned his mother, you've mentioned his brothers and sisters. Um, well, he, he, I suppose for, for, for them as a family, they were a very creative family. And his sisters, Susan and Elizabeth, uh, had a, a very profound role in his life because they, uh, they were the ones who went out to earn money originally when they lived in London. Uh, William Butler himself would have been pretty starving, left to his own devices as a young man. Uh, so while it isn't that he shaped stories about his family, but that his family worked together to share their own inspirations from landscape. And so when Elizabeth set up the printing press uh, to print WB's books and Jack was doing etchings and drawings for the books and for the press. They worked together, so they drew on their collective imagination, largely from Sligo in the west of Ireland, to produce work for other people to share. But you couldn't, you couldn't pinpoint one piece that said that. Mm-hmm. It was a collective of their work together. And Susan, uh, the older sister, was a, a, a craftswoman, an embroiderer of beautiful proportions. So, for example, she has one embroidery uh, which is inspired by the Song of Wandering Angus. So you can see how together they, they crafted this beautiful amount of work. But there isn't something you would pull out and say, oh, there's a story. Uh, the, the work together is what creates a kind of a memory of that time. Mm. So the stories were almost bleeding into different artistic forms and creations and inspiring further works. For sure, they all had a different part of the same creative space. Mm. They didn't fall over each other. And in fact, Elizabeth and Susan themselves were actually very good writers, but because they were women, they didn't get such a good look in. And in fact, history will show that they were largely written out of the last century in terms of their contribution to the arts and crafts movement in Ireland, Mm -hmm. 
Jack, of course, has become increasingly famous as his works have, have grown in value, uh, but certainly the women are now beginning to take their place and they, and they deserve it as part of that great creative enterprise at the turn of the 20th century. Even up within their own publishing house to drive sure. forward that at that time. An extraordinary thing for a woman to set up a publishing house to have the courage to learn how to print books when it was really difficult to do. That never stopped her. She argued with her brother constantly, but they got the work out. And anyone who goes back and looks at the original uh, beautiful uh, illustrations that were done by Elizabeth and others for some of William Butler Yeats's books will see that you know, they valued all the parts of creativity, not just the writing. They understood that the visual arts had a huge contribution to make. It was almost so, nurturing each other. At absolutely. Fact. Nurturing the creativity of new ideas and springboards yeah. and catalysts. And so in terms of, of young students looking at that kind of work now, for some people will surely be drawn by the visual That's explanation. Right. And that too is hugely important. Absolutely. It's a, a way of, of them finding their own capacity to, to be creative. Yeah. And to be expressing of their ideas and their storytelling. Yeah. So no better family to do that. Lovely. Yet it's also true, read widely. So we talked about his family nurturing his ideas and his creativity, but reading widely to find the source of his inspiration and that he would steal ideas from many different places and writers. I recall you mentioning once to me Paddy Flynn, the gardener at Avina House in Ballasadere, County Sligo, who Yates described in the words seen here on screen. Can you tell us about how he was inspired to write about the commonplace and the ordinary? Yeah, Somehow people believe that William Butler Yeats must have been born with that lovely aristocratic kind of style, with that silver hair and that sort of know-it-all look about him. But in fact, he worked incredibly hard crafting his poetry and his, and his writing. He, he worked at it. it was, he always recognised that this was a, a labour, that you had to labour at it to get it right. And so he would be inspired by people like uh, Paddy who could just tell a story. But for him, it was harder than that. And so I think it's important, particularly for young people who perhaps sometimes despair of their own capacity to write, and then they look at someone like Yeats and they go, God, I could never be like that. But just to think, it, it does take an effort to get it right, and he never stopped correcting his work. He, he corrected it constantly, all the time, even to his own epitaph on his grave. He edited that three months before he died. So he always knew the power of words and the fact that you should you should strive to be better. And so he wasn't born like that. Mm. He, didn't, he wasn't born a wonderful poet. Or and a he was willing writer. to learn from he others. He was willing like... to learn all the time, from, from people like Paddy Flynn, mm. right through to the great classic writers, right through to William Blake, who was his great inspiration, the poet. You know, he understood you had to draw the threads from the world. You couldn't just rely on yourself. So for young people to not be afraid to take inspiration from whoever is around them and from whatever books they're reading mm. or whatever they're watching on television or on social media, that can be their inspiration in the 21st century. But we'd like to believe that Yeats could play a role in that inspiration also because he was so darn good at it. Yes. Uh, he understood how to craft and writing is a craft ultimately. And Yeats could even encourage students to realise there's a natural storyteller in their own family, be it the grandfather who can hold everybody wrapped with attention to draw on that and learn from that form of storytelling and bring it into their writing just as Yeats has done. Yes, and, not, and, not, and to be open to that idea that people, Irish people are exceptionally good at telling stories. They understand how to keep the plot going and they understand that little sense of suspense That's right. uh, to keep people listening in, even to things that are 
relatively dull perhaps uh, so so Yeats was particularly good at that because he was listening to that authentic mm-hmm. store of stories and, and imagine to be a teacher now to be able to have that authentic store of stories and to take it into the classroom and to create something utterly magical that the children actually the young people won't have heard before many of them and to just open up another world. I think that's a, a great capacity that's that's available now uh, for teachers. Absolutely, yeah. and it's encouraging to think that our students can mirror Yeats's writing process and develop stories by drawing on the people in their own lives and by tuning into the world around them. Mm. And, I mean, Yeats said himself uh, back at, in the late 1890s, England is old and her poets must scrape up the crumbs of an almost finished banquet but Ireland is still young. We still have a real source of stories here. So he recognised that we had not lost that. And that's only a, it's only a century ago, yes. actually. So I know it seems like a lot if you're a young person, but it isn't that long ago. Mm. So go for it, because those stories are incredibly fresh and wonderful. Mm. So with that in mind, we posed a second question on the evening of our webinar, which was this. How could your students draw inspiration from their own worlds to stimulate ideas for writing? Lorraine, once again, could you tell us of the responses we received that night? Absolutely, Elaine. Um, One response was that students could explore the myths and legends of their own locality. Another, that Yeats's idea of Irishness is something that many students could draw from, feeding into their own ideas of Irishness. And for non-Irish students... Yeats's longing for Ireland when he was living in London is something that they could also relate to and draw inspiration from. The idea of being in a foreign place and dreaming of a life and place that you used to live in. And a final response um, is that we can bring in the real world resources to the classroom and encourage students to do the same, encourage students to write about something that means a lot to them rather than any just um, than just any random subject matter, encourage students to reflect on the worlds around them. And in my school, this teacher says, um, the English art and music department come together and create an exhibition in the library of a topic that means something to them. All of our first and second year students create poetry and slogans for the exhibition and recite them on the opening night of the exhibition. The art department create artwork related to the topic and the music students sing and play music related to the theme also. Every year the students are really excited about it as the theme is always something that is meaningful to them. Um, Yeats wrote about the world around him and for students, the world around them is their greatest um, source. Oh Lorraine, that is so rich and stimulating coming in from teachers. It's very exciting to think this can go beyond on our classrooms. So as we move on, we would like to consider Yeats' connection now with myths and legends. We've looked at him as a teller of tales. With myths and legends, considering his short stories, what was fueling his desire to collect such myths and legends? Susan, the desire? I mean, he was very interested in this other world, that idea that an, another world outside of our own could inspire you. And he, he held that for the whole of his life. So. In the discovery of of myths and legends, he realised that that was a way into that other world, that idea of a more spiritual world. But the real driving force was the idea that Ireland's identity had been largely crushed over centuries of British rule. 
And he was alive, of course, at that very um, time of ferment when the, the, the sort of clash among people about how to, to uh, give Ireland back its independence was, was really ro- roaring into 1916. And Yeats didn't have a violent bone in his body. He would never have gone out and taken up arms. He'd never have fired a gun. He had no interest at all, in fact. In, he, he abhorred war. But a part of him understood that if Ireland was to be independent and to, re- and to place herself back in the world as a nation, it, Ireland needed to understand who she had been, where our history had come from, the sorts of stories and identities that people had chosen and shaped over centuries. And in, and in going back and trying to choose out and, and collect and listen to those stories, he was, if you like, shaping that identity again for the 20th century, so that those people who were fighting to say we're independent could know what that meant to be independent and who Ireland really was. And in fact, he opened the Abbey Theatre a full 12 years before uh, the Easter Rising. He was already understood a, a cultural battle had to be fought as much as perhaps a physical battle had to be fought. So it was quite... It's easier perhaps sometimes to look back at what he was doing rather than understand it at the time. But he was acutely aware that this was very important and he was absolutely right. You, you, you don't know who you can be unless you know who you've been. Mm. And that was his real contribution. Mm. So he wasn't just collecting stories and saying, oh, these are kind of interesting. He was collecting them with an absolute there was, purpose. There was a purpose, yes. It's interesting that he's using myths and legends almost like a transformative power in his writing. Absolutely, and and because he was interested anyway in that, as I say, that other world, the fairies, the spirits, mm. the the sort of the 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 part of the mind that he always believed you could tap into if you allowed yourself to do that. I guess he was the right person in the right place at the right time, and it has to be said that Lady Augusta Gregory was an enormous addition uh, to this work. She had met him after he published his first book. Uh, uh, and she could see that he was interested in these stories, and so was she. She was also an Anglo-Irish woman, uh, but she had become enthralled by these stories and by the myths and the legends, and she learned how to speak Irish, a thing that he never achieved. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't have the patience, I don't think, and, and the structure was too much for him. So together, th- they became a much more effective team, mm-hmm. in, and they both understood, and she was very clear that this was about a nation-building exercise. And when you look back, what an extraordinary thing to have happened. Um, but they were inspired, you know, as I said, by all those other people who were also, if you like, shouting and protesting and saying, this has to change. Yes, yeah, interesting. As you speak to me, it makes me think that no writer exists in a vacuum. Uh, you know, I, another writer will support another writer. All the time. Common purpose. All the time. And because he was always reading other people's work, and he was very generous in reviewing other poetry and other writing, and he was part of a rhymer's club in London that he set up where poets would basically sit around in a pub called the Cheshire Cheese and have a pint <laughs> or, or whatever it was they were drinking and discuss each other's work. And they were quite critical of each other's work. But, of course, that is the only way to do it if you're really interested uh, hence, young people at school, you know, if the if the if the environment can be shaped so that that criticism is not so harsh, perhaps, but that you're able to take on board other people's observations mm. about your writing, again, it goes back to that idea of crafting it. Mm. It isn't something you do as a solitary effort at all. It very much is part of that mix of other people talking to you, 
uh, and teachers also encouraging and supporting and suggesting ideas how to make things better. Take them all uh, with huge, huge enthusiasm. Working together with support. So yeah. with that in mind, let's consider the myths and legends. And one resource that we might find as a support to us in understanding these myths and legends is an interview given by Dr Jenny Butler, a lecturer in the study of religions department in University College Cork on the topic of Irish fairy lore. Let's take a listen. Yeats's collected folktales are infused with fairy lore, and Dr. Butler talks of mounds on the Irish landscape that even today are termed as fairy places and are treated with respect for fear they'll draw upon us ill luck. These ideas are peppered throughout the Celtic Twilight anthology, which played an important part in Yeats's creative development and grew from a diary Yeats kept while walking throughout the west of Ireland. For instance, in Village Ghosts, we see an example of local folklore expressing local myths and legends. Her husband was asleep by the fire. A tall man came in and sat beside him. After he had been sitting there for a while, the woman said, In the name of God, who are you? He got up and went out, saying, Never leave the door open at this hour, or evil may come to you. She woke her husband and told him, One of the good people has been with us, said he. very apparent how rich these stories are, Susan, in terms of myth and legend. They're very original stories, aren't they, for our students to draw upon? And, and I think that they are, they are the original stories, and they were created at a time when there were no influences from the outside. The peasants who lived on the land had each other, they had the darkness, they had that strange light that comes just early in the morning. Uh, they would have gone to bed early in winter when it was dark and got up and stayed up much longer when the light was there in the summer. Uh, they had the animals and the birds and the hedges and the wind. But they didn't have any other influences. So everything was created entirely from their imagination. They didn't have books. They didn't have radio. They didn't have television. They didn't have social media. No screens. Nothing. Therefore, whatever they created was purely from their imagination and from their fears, and from the darkness, and I'm sure from poverty, and I'm sure from hunger sometimes. That's what makes these stories so rich and so valuable. They are original, authentic stories, and as such, to draw from them means you're going right back to a store that goes back centuries. And I know when I walk down my road at night, I live in a particularly dark place. You can just imagine it as it was two, three hundred years ago. I can, there are no streetlights. There's just this amazing starscape. And it is like being transported to another world. So for young people to be able to be transported to another world that is of our world, mm -hmm. these are the very stories to help them to do that mm. in a manner that you won't be able and couldn't get through a screen, actually, because, of course, they weren't ever transmitted by screen. So reading them is the, next, is the closest thing. Or, in fact, to get someone to tell the story, to actually speak the story. That would be a really amazing experience, perhaps, for teachers to try that. Let's look at another. The man in his boots. We have this extract. One of his boots began to move. It got up off the floor and gave a kind of slow jump towards the door. 
And then the other boot did the same. And after that, the first boot jumped again. And thereupon it struck the man that an invisible being had got into his boots and was now going away in them. When the boots reached the door, they went upstairs slowly. And then the man heard them go tramp, tramp, round the haunted room over his head. This provides us with an example of the sinister element that appears to pervade this and other stories in the collection. They seem to be populated with ghosts and ghouls. Susan, why such a fascination? Again, we talk about the darkness. You can imagine there was no nothing, only natural light and, and eventually some kind of candles, and they would, of course, only kind of flicker. And, of course, in the flickering of that light create shadows, uh, and shadows are where the, sort of, the two worlds coincide. And death, of course, people would have died. People would have had to bury their own people who had died. So death was very close to people as well. Um, and also those strange sounds, as I say, from, from the wind through those cottages and through the leaves and so on. So everything you know, was shaped into that kind of superstition. People didn't know very much about things. So if anything moved or anything shook, they would assume it had come from another world. And again, this goes back to Yeats' own belief that there is another world, another part of your, your brain, of your thinking, of your spiritual thought, that you ought to be able to tap into. So that's why he was fascinated by it. And of course, even today in the 21st century, people love a ghost story. Mm. They love something sinister. That's why horror movies and the various genres around them are incredibly popular still. So we do like to be frightened a little bit. And of course, the storytellers then would have been going around from house to house as the mobile radio of their time, telling those stories, they would want people on the edge of their seats. And lo and behold, that's exactly what they got. And the slightly more scary stories would have done better, and they'd have earned a few more yeah. little bits of food or whatever they were taking as storytellers. So the power so of was course, the power, suspense. Absolutely. So if they could create a bit more suspense, perhaps they got an extra piece of bread right. uh, or an extra cup of tea or maybe a bit of pudgy. <laughs> and why not? Why wouldn't you do that if you, if you could? Uh, so, you know, there were lots of things at play there, but if, inevitably we, we've always been drawn to that other world. And Yeats wasn't wrong in that. Yeah. Because I can see it here again in The Friends of the People of Fairy. It's quite clear it's recording that superstitious fear of drawing down the wrath of, in Irish mythology, the vengeful banshee. So it's making for spellbinding storytelling. So again, as you're saying, the imagination is really at work here, isn't it? Yes, and again, going back to, to, to understanding Yeats, those stories were alive here. The West Coast really was very distant from Dublin, from the Pale, you know, from Dublin Castle, from the grand houses and the grand dresses, you know, of the, of the monarchy and of the British Empire ruling in Ireland. And so when he would come here, you know, this still was a very wild place. And all those stories very rich. And it was easy to see if he only looked out on the boat and he would, he would take his pony and go riding, he would go out on the boat. He, loved not, he would spend all night wandering around in the forest trying to allow himself to understand what that other world was and hearing those noises. So when the stories were told to him, they, he allowed them to come alive for himself. So that means, therefore, that, that there, whatever he was writing down and gathering, he understood in his own head, too, that these things were real and had a value. So it wasn't just as an academic. Yeats was not an academic. Nothing he did in this genre was academic. It wasn't for the purposes of putting it on a shelf or discussing it from an academic standpoint. It was real for him. That's why they will work for young people now, because they were driven by something real for him. I'm sure many of our young people, too, can recount these 
superstitious stories that they're hearing from their own home places. So it's interesting that they have that resource to kind of draw on. Yeah, and it is the, the collected uh, memory of a nation that he gathered up. And therefore, for our nation, you know, going into the next generation, uh, we have amazing uh, writers. And you know now why we do. And any of them have gone back and looked at these stories. So you're, so our young people today, they don't have to become great storytellers uh, to be published, but to tell stories to each other and to understand is really important. And the power of sharing that story. So with that discussion so far, we thought it might be a nice moment as a reminder here of the suggested learning outcomes we mentioned earlier that Yates's short stories might complement. Perhaps there are others that come to mind. Also a reminder that our 39 learning outcomes can be accessed in the specification on pages 13, 14 and 15 at curriculumonline.ie and on our JCT English page. So far, we've spoken about Yates as a collector of tales from the world around him, whose short stories are filled with myths and legends. And in this final segment, we'd like to consider Yeats as a weaver of words throughout his tales and stories. In the BBC Radio 4 series, In Our Time, Melvin Bragg, a British writer and broadcaster, discusses with guests topics of culture and science. Here, Brenda Maddox, author of Yeats's Ghost, The Secret Life of W.B. Yeats, and George's Ghosts, a new life of W.B. Yeats. They explore just how Yeats believed in the magical properties of words. To say Yeats did believe in magic all his life, and that was the magic of the word, the, the mesmerizing power of, of sound, of the voice. And if you found the right words, let alone the right triangles or daggers or whatever, but the right sound of the word would actually invoke this universal memory. So, as we can see here from this extract taken from Yeats' short story, The Curse of the Fires and the Shadows, Yeats employs powerful language and imagery. This fiction is based on the true story of Sir Frederick Hamilton's burning of Sligo Abbey in 1642, and tells of how the soldiers who participated in this desecration were hunted down by the vengeful banshee. Red tongues of fire rushed up and flickered from corbel to corbel and from tablet to tablet and crept along the floor, setting in a blaze the seats and benches. The dance of the shadows passed away and the dance of the fires began. The troopers fell back towards the door in the southern wall and watched those yellow dancers springing hither and thither. It's a very short read where imagination, mystery, symbolism, and the supernatural all feature. Clearly, when it comes to making an impact with words, Yeats was a master of the art. In what way, Susan, do you consider Yeats to be a weaver of words? Yeats is unusual, um, perhaps, in as far as he himself wasn't musical. He couldn't read music and he couldn't sing unlike James Joyce, who was an extraordinarily good piano player and a beautiful singer, Yeats could do neither. Mm. But he did understand that stories had to be read, that poems had to be read, and there was a musicality in that that he actually understood and could craft from the words. So given that he wasn't musical himself, intuitively, he had to work much harder. And, and he always said that, that, that his work was written to be read, that it was about the listening experience to the words. And so that's why he would spend hours not just writing, but muttering. 
and his siblings used to complain about him, muttering under his breath while he was trying to craft something. And if you can imagine someone muttering under their breath, you too would find it very annoying. And when he shared a cottage with the famous poet Ezra Pound, Pound records that Yeats would be downstairs, marching up and down the room, muttering all the time. It drove Pound mad as well. But it was always about the rhythm, about the rhythm, about the rhythm. And so he he was a, a weaver of words because he understood that that wasn't accidental. Nothing that Yeats did was accidental. He worked incredibly hard. And that's okay. You cannot weave words. It's not a magical thing. It's a labor. It's a labor. Mm. It's a work. And again, for students to understand that, that they too can get to achieve some of that by working at it. It isn't just something that you pick up like magic. And Yeats got that. And therefore, even to get that message, I think, across, mm. you know, you can improve your writing. You can learn about how words work together. Uh, a bit like cooking. You know, you learn which ingredients go together. Mm. And everybody accepts you have to learn how to cook. So you know it's okay to learn how to cook words together or weave them, as Yeats did. Beautiful. And that musical aspect that we're referring to there is recognised by contemporary musicians as well. We're going to listen for a moment to a small piece of a conversation that we've received from the RTE Radio 1's Arena podcast entitled Sligo and WB Yeats 2015. Let's take a listen. It was Steve Wickham, local Sligo resident and also known as the fiddler from the Waterboys. We started our conversation by discussing the intriguing epitaph that's written on Yeats's gravestone. I've been looking at it for the last 20 years. The cast of gold iron life and death horse man passed by is the sound of the clippity flop of the horse. Because if you just take the consonants and leave it at the vowels, you get. So, horse clipping by, cast the gold iron life and death horse man passed by. What do you think it means? It's a poetic instruction. All poets must cast a cold eye on life and on death, horseman, pass by. Don't worry about death. I love that idea of Yeats as a songwriter. I, I think it's an incredibly um, accurate summation of what Yeats was trying to achieve. I think Steve's really mastered that in, that in in that one small explanation there of what Yeats was always trying to achieve. Um, it was difficult. And again, I go back to this idea of it being a labour. That has to be worked on because that original epitaph had, a, had another line before it, draw rain, as in the reins of a horse, draw breath, cast a cold eye on life, on death. But for Yeats, that was too soft. So he took out that first line. And so that's why it's quite an abrupt epitaph. The three lines don't look like they belong together. But Steve is picking out and explaining the musicality of it. Um, and also, of course, it makes you pay more attention to mm. it because it is a bit like... It's more dramatic and staccato. Much more dramatic. And people always ask about it as a result. I mean, Yeats was no fool. He knew exactly what he was doing. He wanted people... I think he's probably the most quoted epitaph in the world. What an achievement. And probably what his intention. Absolutely. Oh, when yes. he crafted his choice. Absolutely. Of and again, showing that idea of craft, of labour, that you can achieve things. And great writers will say that themselves. No great writer will ever say anything other than, it is a work, it is a labour. Mm. And we talked to others in relation to our interview we had with Professor Declan Kybert at the Asia Michael Hartnett Festival in Newcastle, West Limerick, last April. 
about the process of writing. Let's listen to what he had to say about the writing process, Yeats, and language as an instrument. I think with this idea of process rather than product, and I agree with it, I think sometimes it, you don't quite know where the language you're using will bring you, and that's the most exciting thing. Yes, you can start with an emotion or an image or even a person, and you don't have to have people even, but I think it brings you to a strange place and it opens you to the strangeness in yourself. And a lot of people have the image of writers as people who report emotions or events. I think of artists and writers as people who also invent them in the act of doing that reporting. They may think initially they're doing that, but they often end up creating another emotion through the strange medium, the music of language. And I think the really great writers, you know, I think of the Yeats do that, that he invented emotions, he didn't just describe them. And I'd say that about singers as well, like Bob Dylan, that the reason we're haunted by his lyrics and songs is because he invented emotions almost before we knew we had them ourselves. So it, it, it's not a kind of mere reflection of the existing world. It's, an, it's a probe into a world yet unknown, which maybe the artist can help to create for us. I mean, think about W.B., for instance, Yeats. Um, even after he had published poems in volumes, oh, yes, yeah. he walked around with them and yeah. changed them. Yeah. And people would complain, well, we paid money yeah. for a complete version of your poem, and here you are tricking around. And he wrote this great couplet, they do not know what is at stake. It is myself that I remake that nothing is stable over time, everything shifts and changes, and it's good. I think it's like a musical instrument. You would take it up and make little sounds out of it and see what it would do. Language works like that. I think most people who are teenagers actually secretly, just as they try out sounds on a guitar, do that with words. It doesn't matter if, say, a thousand people at the age of 14 are writing what they want to call poems, and only one of them turned to a WP. It's still important that everyone does it, and, and it serves all kinds of deep needs in itself. Isn't it a powerful message, Susan, to communicate to our students in the classroom that language is a musical instrument, and that even writers such as Yeats was tricking around with words, was changing himself as he was writing? And it is, because Yeats always understood as well that what he felt at 22 wasn't what he felt at 32, or 52, or 62, or 72. And that capacity to be able to review your work, or to look at it and say, hmm, I think I'd like to say something slightly different, or I'm going to take that word away and replace it, or I'm going to take that whole sentence away. You know, that shows an understanding that things are not static, words are not static either. And I think in a way it's very hard sometimes in the discipline of a school, you know, you write an essay and you hand it in and then it is as it is. You don't get that chance to go back. But that if you're writing creatively in any way, and this hopefully this curriculum allows that now to, for, for young people to understand that you can create and recreate. And, and Yeats, as part of his Rhymers Club, uh, he, he, they encouraged each other to rewrite work. Uh, when he worked at Oxford, uh, they had a group that would come in every Monday night and they would sit and they would reassemble their work. He was very supportive of Eva Gore Booth uh, from the Sedell here in Sligo. She was a poet and he was very supportive of her work, encouraging her to rework things, to rethink them. So I think 
that that is something that's that's very valuable uh, and I think that a lot of, of people coming through school never quite got that message you know it, it would be perhaps corrected for something that wasn't quite right but that idea that that's fine correction is a good thing I think that's a really useful thing to take as part of the weaving of words that you're weaving them but you can alter them as well mm-hmm. and that's the heart of the message with our with our new specification now the process of writing to come back to work to improve it to make it grow and develop and allow others to help you in that growth and development and improvement yeah and so, I think one of the problems we have actually in, in with with modern uh, technology is that we won't see in the same way the revisions that that um, writers make because they revise and they give a script that's clean whereas back in the day when it was pen and paper or even typewriters you could see where the alterations were made and we have some of uh, a handful of Yeats's original work here uh, and there's some also in the in the National uh, Library you know we can see even putting the, the line through with a pen where he takes away something mm. and then we begin to understand what he was at it won't be quite as visible yeah, you can see the growth we from yes. the beginning so that's something actually we encourage in our classroom based assessments now that our students would keep their drafts in order to reflect on their growth as a writer what they did yeah. trick around with in words what they did change word choice or whatever other changes they made with feedback from the teacher or from their peers or even from themselves when they look at it with older eyes yeah. on a piece of work drafting there so really I suppose I'm touching on a question I was going to ask earlier that you're saying he relied on feedback for himself and that you mentioned you alluded to a couple of writers he helped what influence did he have on other writers I remember you talking to me before about the Nobel Prize winner Yes, I mean, as a, Yeats was always considered quite autocratic, quite bossy, quite selfish. But in fact, he was, he could be some of those things. But I, I think the word selfish is unfair. He had a huge influence on Rabindranath Tagore, who was the Indian national poet, who came to London in 1912, and Yeats befriended him. And before Yeats knew where he was, Tagore had won the Nobel Prize in 1913, <laughs> largely down to Yeats's effort at promoting him. I mean, Tagore's work was worthy of the prize, but it was the promotion of Tagore that helped him to position him then. Uh, Yeats, of course, didn't win his prize till 1923. We also know now that there exists quite a body of letters, although we haven't seen them yet, between James Joyce and William Butler Yeats. They were sold uh, in 2017 as part of the Yeats family estate, uh, and they now belong to the state, so we're looking forward to them going on display. So Joyce was younger than Yeats, and the public understanding of their relationship was always that they were a bit, it was a bit fraught, okay. but I think that they were friendlier than we imagine. So in these letters you are imagining that Yeats will be giving advice to him on his work? Well, certainly we know that Joyce did ask for advice. Oh. Uh, Joyce was very particular about his work and was always asking for people to give him information and to give him factual information, uh, albeit that his construct of sentences and so on was quite different from other people's. He did always seek advice and support. Um, and then again, Ezra Pound, the American poet, would have worked and uh, almost as a kind of um, apprentice uh, with Yeats for many years. And as I said, Eva Gore Booth, there were many others in the circle. That were, they may have been less well known, uh, but Yeats would have read everyone's work. And anybody that was producing work at that time, uh, you know, people like T.S. Eliot, he would have been reading everything. And even if he wasn't sharing his, his criticism with them, he was at least being a critic of their work. Not just to be a critic of their work, but to understand his own work and to, to help to benefit his work too. So, you know, if within a classroom or within a group of students, two or three of them happen to get on well together and are able to share observations about each other's work, 
that's probably also a very valuable thing because doing it in a big group can be just mm. actually quite tricky because it's hard to get around everybody. But perhaps breaking them into smaller groups might help with that idea of just sharing and listening and saying, oh, have you tried this? Have you tried that? And you know what? You can take. You don't have to take all the advice you're given. Yates, for sure, wouldn't have taken all the advice he was given. And I'm sure some of the people listening to him didn't take all his advice either. Mm-hmm. But it's to understand that you can take it. Yeah, to be tuned in, to be, be open-minded. To be open to the idea of it. And so for teachers to be able to be in that mode or in that mode, that they are part of that uh, circle with the students. Yeah. Uh, and there's no right and wrong. There's just improving and, and, and making it better. It almost reminds me of the analogy of the, the magpie, the stealing of the little bits of ideas Always. that you think could enrich a piece of work. And even if it doesn't enrich that piece of work, the next piece you might write... Always. I mean, Yates started his life being really interested in, in sort of um, in India, and that was his first influence. And you can imagine back in the sort of late 19th century, it was so exotic. Yes. The ideas, the colours, anything that they knew about India, it wouldn't have been as much as we know, would have just been so attractive. And so sensory as well. And then he realised, of course, that what was really attractive was what he knew, which was Sligo, which was Ireland. And so close to home. And so close to home. Susan, the final question we posed on the Night of the Life broadcast was this. How might you use tonight's resources, short stories and ideas to support your students in the writing process? Lorraine, what did teachers suggest to us on the night? A couple of responses here, Elaine. Um, One response was that you could create a short drama extract based on the man and his boots. Um, another highlight the themes of Yeats's short stories and how they are relevant to his setting, time and place. Um, brainstorm, are they still relevant today or are there new aspects that Yeats would write about if this was today, if he was writing today? Um, debate, are myths and tales still present today or has our society moved on from this type of belief process? Um, the importance of storytelling to record our history, ask students to create the opening to a story based on one of the myths or tales present in our locality. Mm. Some lovely stimulating, engaging experiences that could emerge in the classroom from those. To all the questions posed on the night, there were some wonderful contributions. And so we'd like to take this opportunity to thank teachers for their engagement, which has been so stimulating and enriching. As we're drawing to a close, we'd like you to consider this quote from Evan Boland. I read W.B. Yeats first when I was a teenager. I got to know lines, then stanzas, then whole poems. What was revealed to me was how willing I was in this initial encounter to enter a Yeatsian world of lakes, of spirits hidden inside mountain winds and heroic legends. How easily I passed into all of this, like an unchallenged ghost. Now I look back, I know the key to my first response was not the truth of his representation, but the depth of my own displacement. Susan, this is a very powerful quote about the influence Yeats had on her as a young reader and subsequently as a writer. It really is a a perfect quote, I think, that that sums up how W.B. Yeats might influence someone like Van Boland as a writer and as a poet. Um, and as we say, you know, Yeats was undoubtedly a genius, but he did work very hard to ensure that, what, that, that he had the power of the imagination and the power of inspiration, the twin pillars that you build your writing experience on. 
and they were always alive for him and they were clearly alive for, for Van Boland when she read him first and, and I suppose what she's telling us was his capacity to represent what he saw and what he heard was flawless, was, was beautiful and it really spoke to her but what surprised her it was the strength and the depth of that of the impact that that had on her and that only comes from that labor and that being in touch with inspiration and imagination as the the twin pillars of your writing experience and that's the only way then to strike the heart's core of a reader isn't it for sure and you know that that final line i hear it in the deep heart's core of that very well known poem the lake i live in shree for me, that has always resonated, that we all have a deep heart's core and that something needs to be always alive uh, in that when you're writing, that you can hear it in your deep heart's core because if you can hear it, they can hear it. And I think Yeats always understood that. So we all have a story and we all have the need to share that story that's in our hearts. Absolutely, and it's the opportunity at school, if it can be given is to at least open that door and say to young people, you do have that opportunity. It's okay to start saying that or to start telling that story, no matter how, how it looks at the start. Don't worry. It, you can build it. You can drive it. You can change it. And you can turn it into something that you can hear in your heart school. And have a voice. We hope so that our students will feel that need to create new fairy stories and folk tales to guide the way forward and that Yeats will inspire them as writers so they can go forth and be, as we said at the start of the webinar, the teller of tales and seize whatever prey the heart long for and to have no fear. So we've come to the end of our conversation tonight on Yeats and short stories, his growth as a writer moving from his twilight into the limelight. I'd like to offer a word of thanks to my colleagues Lorraine and Emma for their tremendous support behind the scenes today. But an especial word of thanks to you, Susan, for the sharing of your time, but most importantly, your depth of knowledge, your expertise, and your insights on Yeats, which has proved immensely illuminating to me and to my fellow English teachers. So thank you very much, Susan. It's been a pleasure, and I hope and, and trust that Yeats will be heard in a new way uh, across the classrooms of Ireland, and that a whole new generation will be open and, and open to the idea of William Butler Yeats and his work, and that it will help them to hear uh, to hear their own voice and to contribute their own stories to the world. I agree, and thank you again. To hear more from Junior Cycle Talks, search for us on SoundCloud or anywhere that you listen to your podcasts.